at Assist Church Expansion, we're working really hard to try to preserve the footprint of the gospel where we already have churches. We do that through revitalization and restart. At Assist, our process for revitalizing or restarting a church, we call our five big rocks. The first big rock is unity. We need to unify the church. First, the leaders of the church, the key stakeholders of the church, then to the congregation itself. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. So we have to be unified. Unless the whole church is unified towards a partnership and process for revitalization or restart, we will not move forward. The first step is unity. The second big rock is leadership. Most churches that are in a position that need revitalization and restart are looking for a shepherd or teacher. Both of those gifts are really important in the church. But a church can't go from where it is to where it needs to be without a strong leader. We're looking for a strong leader to help that church move forward. And that leader we're trying to find is someone who's also aligned with us theologically. We work hard to make sure that the person who's coming to take on a fellowship church doesn't just want to lead the church, but wants to be part of our family. That's really important. The second rock is leadership. The third big rock is team. You can have a fantastic leader, but he's limited to the gifts that God's given to him. There needs to be more than one or two gifts applied to the vision and strategy and the execution of a plan. It's really important that he has a team of people to round that out. Also, having a team gives you more people in the church to push that vision forward, and the leader isn't doing it by himself. It's really important to have a team. Fourth rock is a plan. We want to help the church build a comprehensive strategic plan. Our goal at Assist isn't to give them a prescribed way of doing church. We actually want to help them think through for themselves. How do we reach our community? How do we make disciples? How do we reproduce? And at the end of the day, they don't just have an idea of what they're trying to accomplish, but they have a comprehensive strategic plan. The fourth big rock is a plan. The fifth big rock is launch. You've got unity in the church. You've found the right leader. You've built a team, and now you have a strategic plan. Now we want to execute that plan and launch that new vision into the community and reach more people for Jesus. We want to see a new day happen for that church. The illustration that we use to tie this all together is like inviting people over to your house for dessert. But when they get there, you're not ready for them. The house is dirty, the table's not set, and there's no cake ready for dessert. But what we want to do is we want to clean the house, set the table, finish baking the cake, and then we open the door. We want to unify the church, find a great leader, build a good team, finish building a strategy and strategic plan, then we want to launch that new vision into the community and see who God will allow us to reach and create a new day for that church. It's been a great week. It's been a busy but a great week. Um, if you if you pay attention to that and you see this video before, uh, I think this is on, right? It's on. Yeah. The bottom bottom button. Oh, oh, oh. Hold it. Here's another trick on this one. So I thought it was Pastor Roy, the only one that did it. Let's see. <laughs> He's got somebody to defend him. Let's see. Wrong button. <laughs> That's what I that now. So, if you guys, uh, you know, you guys have seen this video before, so you know that in these big five rocks, we 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 keep on saying we get we we have been communicating to you guys as a church that we are a church in transition, and one of the things is we are working on those big five rocks right there, 
and uh, and the big five rock, the, the number one, what's the number one? Let's see. Unity. Unity. There is unity in the church. We agree that we need to move forward in doing some things a little bit different than what we've been doing. What's rock number two? Leadership. And we got the leadership. We're, we're working with that. Rock number three. Team. And we have a team. And we pray for our team. We prayed for our team a couple of weeks ago, and our, our team was working really hard this week. We were doing a boot camp with Bart uh, and, and Ed, uh, Ed Short. Uh, we were doing a boot camp, tiring and everything, but it was a blessing. It was a great time. We were, we were working uh, seven to eight hours. Uh, one day he made us work. He, he's, he made us work nine hours one day. It was close to nine. So, uh, so it was good. Um, so we did that for a couple of days. We're working on uh, purpose. We're working on uh, vision. We're working on strategy. And they're helping us already to get to rock number four. So rock number four is create a plan. And so since we're a church in transition, we're waiting and we're looking forward to do another boot camp with Assist. So Bart is going to share with us this morning. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a privilege to have him here with us today. So we had to take advantage of that to uh, ask him to preach for us this morning. So we're going to ask Bart to uh, lead us in, in, uh, in the teaching time this morning. Thank you, Pastor Oscar. Some of you are like wondering who the weird guy was on the stage taking pictures during the baptism. I know. And I apologize for being so uh, forward to jump up on the stage and do it. But the reality is um, that is why we do what we do. I don't know how many of you realize this, that our... our uh, Spiritual forefathers in the Grace Brethren movement 200, 300 years ago were known as the Dunkers. That's what we were known for in the community where we did ministry because that's what we do. We lead people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and we put them in the water and we dunk them. You did that very well, Pastor Roy. And congratulations to those of you who uh, testified publicly to your faith today. Um, that's really encouraging to me. My role with Assist Church Expansion is uh, the Director of Church Revitalization. Um, it is a role that uh, I've been doing for the last four years, uh, serving churches in our fellowship. I've only actually had the title since January of this year because the title didn't really exist. Uh, we were doing the work, but we really were, we kind of fell into it accidentally, um, Assist Church Expansion started in 2017 as a church planting ministry. We want to plant more churches in our fellowship. We want to see our fellowship become a growing movement of churches around the United States and Canada. But we discovered back in 2017, 2018, 2019 um, that we were losing more churches every year than we could ever possibly plant. And uh, there are a variety of reasons why we're losing churches, uh, one of which is a lot of churches are simply aging out. Some of them are in communities where uh, people have moved out of the community and the community is shrinking. Uh, sometimes there's theological misalignment and pastors remove churches from the fellowship because they're not unified with our fellowship, with our spiritual family on theological matters. And so we developed a process and a strategy for walking alongside churches in our fellowship uh, to, uh, to help them discover a fresh new vision um, and a new future for their church so that they can make a significant impact in their community. And so things like this, this baptism, is not just happening every once in a while, but it's happening all the time because the people in this community uh, are finding their way home to God. I took a walk this morning uh, over by Studebaker Elementary School, and uh, there's baseball diamonds right across from the school, and families showing up at you know 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, 
playing uh, for little pipsqueak baseball. And I had sons that played baseball. And, you know, it just takes me back. But I also look at those people and I know that many of them, most of them probably don't know Jesus. Uh, Most of them probably don't have um, a positive faith journey or faith story to tell. And I am praying uh, that you all here at Norwalk Grace Brethren Church uh, can be an instrument, a vehicle for God in this community uh, to see this community revived in Jesus Christ's name. Um, As Oscar mentioned, um, we had the opportunity to spend a couple of days with your vision team here. We did a lot of work. There's still a lot of work to do. We are working on that big rock number four uh, to put a plan together. Who is God calling us to reach? How are we going to reach those people? How are we going to establish this church or reestablish this church in this community as a beacon of light uh, for the gospel? And we're working on that plan. And you need to continue to pray for your pastoral staff here and that vision team because there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I actually, we had, we took the day off yesterday and so I had some time free and I have a friend, um, who I've known for a few years, uh, it's a growing relationship, uh, who lives up in, uh, San Luis Obispo and I just discovered last week that, uh, he and his wife and their sons, uh, are spending this school year here in Los Angeles. And uh, so I emailed him and I said, if you're in L.A., I want to see you. Um, And uh, he said, that'd be great. And he gave me his address. And so I I took a couple of hours yesterday afternoon to uh, go uh, meet with him and get caught up. Um, I'd never met his wife before. Uh, My friend's name is Adam. His wife's name is Debbie. And so I'd never met his wife. And so we're sitting in their living room kind of getting acquainted. And she was asking me questions about the work that I do in the church uh, here in Norwalk and why I'm here and what I'm doing. Um, One thing to note about my friend Adam and his wife Debbie is that they are Jewish. In fact, the reason that they moved uh, to the Los Angeles area this year is because the school that they want to put their sons in is a Hebrew school. Um, I have a Hebrew tattoo on my arm. And you can ask me about that later if you want to. Um, But my friend Adam's 11-year-old son, Felix, came into uh, the living room and he said, Felix, can you read Mr. Blair's arm? And he went, uh, Ephraim. He nailed it as an 11 year old because he's going to school and he's learning Hebrew. Uh, anyway, as I'm sharing with Adam and Debbie about the work that I do and the, what we've been doing here at Norwalk Grace Brethren Church, Debbie looks at me and she asks me a question. She said, so do you consider yourself evangelical? And I paused for a moment because I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to answer that question. Because I realized that in our culture, in our world today, when we use the word evangelical, not everybody means the same thing when they use that word. Some of us in the church might have a pretty good grip on what the word evangelical means. But people outside the church, out in the community, they might... Use that word to describe people for different reasons. In fact, here's a little group participation time. What are some things that you think people outside the church mean when they say, see, or hear the word evangelical? What are some things that come to your mind that your neighbors might think when they hear that word? What was that? Mega church? Trump? What was that, Jenny? Political? TV evangelist, born again, 
Yeah, there are a lot of different things. And to be perfectly honest with you, when I read the newspaper, watch the news, usually when the word evangelical is being tossed around outside the church culture, it's not used as a positive term. But here's the deal. The word evangelical comes from a late Latin word, evangelium which comes from a Greek word. It's actually two Greek words put together. Forgive my ancient Greek. I didn't study this in seminary. Euangelos, which basically means a messenger of news or messenger of good news. Uh, Evangelical means bringer of good news. Guess what? Norwalk Grace Brethren Church is an evangelical church. It means that this church... If we're not defined by anything else, the thing we're supposed to be defined by as being bringers of good news. This is a church that brings good news to the community. Therefore, those of you who are a part of Norwalk Grace Brethren Church, you are evangelists. Ooh. Now, that's another word that sometimes has some connotations in the culture that maybe we don't want to associate with. Now, you, those of us in the church, like when I think of evangelist, my mind goes right to good old Billy Graham. How many of you thought of Billy Graham? When you hear the word evangelist, Billy Graham, like for the last century, the classic evangelist, um, he represented God well with his life. But sometimes people think of the television evangelist, the greasy, sweaty, slick back hair guy that's on TV late at night asking people to give money so that he can have a new jet to fly around the country in, right? But that's what we are. If we are part of this evangelical community called Norwalk Grace Brethren Church, then we are evangelists. And if we are evangelists, that means that we ought to be practicing this thing called evangelism. Now, there's a word that can strike fear into the heart of many men. Evangelism. When I was a kid, I grew up in Texas in the 1970s, 1980s. And when my church practiced evangelism, it meant that we were all getting together at the church building on a Saturday morning. And then we were divvying up in cars, vans, the church van, whatever. We were driving to different parts of town and we were going and knocking on people's doors and asking them if they wanted to talk about Jesus. As a kid, man, that was like the most horrifying thing that I could ever imagine doing. And maybe, just maybe, there was a time in our culture where you could walk around and knock on strangers' doors, and when they opened them, you could ask them if they wanted to talk about their faith or God or religion or the Bible or their eternal salvation. But I'm pretty confident that most of you would be with me on this. And in 2022, in Southern California, that tactic is probably going to be more hazardous to our health than it is going to be helpful for our church. Would you agree with me on that? Just nod your heads. We're not going to go out and knock on people's doors. I mean, some of you are like, if you're spiritually gifted and wired as an evangelist and you're an extroverted personality, you might be thinking, oh, I thought that's what we were going to do. Sign me up for that. But most of us, no. Most of us would, we wouldn't show up for that evangelistic opportunity. We wouldn't. But, doesn't take us off the hook of figuring out how we are supposed to practice evangelism to be bringers of the good news to the community that God has called us to and the community that we're supposed to serve and reach for him. Um, We struggle with this. But our directives come straight from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. 
many of you have probably heard this. Jesus said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Pause. That means Jesus is in charge of everything on heaven and earth. Like he's the boss. He's the head honcho. He is the CEO, the COO, the CFO, any other, whatever. He's the chief guy. He's the head dude. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, dunking them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. The legendary missionary Hudson Taylor says that this great commission is not an option to consider, but it's a commandment to follow. You know, we have the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love that. Then we have the great commission. And we're satisfied with letting the commission be a commission and not really a commandment. But I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> That's a commandment from Jesus. I'm in charge of everything, so you need to go make disciples. Wow. That's a tough commandment. That's a tough directive. Why do we need to do this? Why is it so important to Jesus that we are bringers of the good news? It's plain and simple. Jesus has already done the hard part. Okay? Every single human being on planet Earth is separated by God as a result of their sin. It's another word that people don't like to talk about. Who are you to say, I'm a sinner? Well, I'll just, let's strip it down for a second. When I say strip it down, I don't mean water down the gospel. I say strip down the word sin. Okay? What is sin? Raise your hand if you've ever done stuff that you shouldn't have done. Stuff. We'll just call it stuff. Okay? That's good enough. Uh, you've probably said stuff you shouldn't have said. You've thought stuff you shouldn't have thought. You're probably thinking stuff you shouldn't be thinking right now. And you're going to do some stuff later today that you probably shouldn't do. All that stuff that we've done that we shouldn't have done. And that stuff that we're going to do that we probably shouldn't do. That is sin. And it doesn't matter how small it is or how big it is. It separates us from our holy God creator. God doesn't want us to be separated from him. He wants us to have a personal, intimate relationship with him. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. So that those who believe in him, those who receive him, can be forgiven of their sin and adopted into God's family. And therefore have that intimate relationship with God that God so desires each and every one of us to have for him. Many of you, maybe most of you in this room, have done that. You've said yes to Jesus. You've started a personal relationship with God, your Father, your Creator, through His Son, Jesus Christ. You're secure in your eternity forever. But the vast majority of the people outside the four walls of this building this morning are not, have not, will not. And it's up to us to be the bringers of the good news. Why do we stink at this so bad? Why are we not good at being bringers of the good news? Sometimes I think it's because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. Sometimes it's simply that we don't know where to start. We're not sure where to start. And so this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage of text for you. And I'm going to give you some ideas about where you can start. Very simple. Something that everyone in this room, no matter whether you've been following Jesus for like 108 years like Pastor Roy, or you are brand new in your faith, I'm just teasing. Whether you've been following Jesus for a very, very long time, or you are brand spanking new in your faith, you can do. 
what I'm going to encourage you to do today. Now, I'm going to read a passage of text from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you've got a mobile device, phone, app, turn it on. Let's get to Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, I'm going to share with you. Some of you are like, oh, Nehemiah chapter 3, that's where my favorite Bible verse is in. Now, this is probably a chapter of the Bible. I can guarantee you this is a chapter of the Bible that when you're reading the Bible, if you're doing like a reading through the Bible or reading through the Bible in a year plan or reading the book of Nehemiah, you're like, you get to this section, you're like, read really fast and then skip to the next page. Because this is not one of those passages of text that has like some of those cute, pithy Bible verses that we print on coffee cups and t-shirts. But... I think because it's God's word, there is something that we can learn from this. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this text before we actually read it, okay? Don't jump ahead of me. I know some of you are like, already starting to read. Just, just be patient. We'll get there in a second, okay? The Old Testament book of Nehemiah, this scroll, this ancient scroll, incidentally, in the Hebrew Bible, was part of another scroll. These two scrolls together were called Ezra and Nehemiah. We have these two books back to back in the Old Testament of our Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there's one scroll called Ezra and Nehemiah. And they are written towards the end of a period of time for the Jewish people, the people of the nation of Judah, the southern territory of Israel, um, called the Babylonian exile. Okay? So a few hundred years before Jesus showed up on the scene in flesh, God handed over the Jewish people, the nation of Judah, the southern territory of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. He handed them over to the Babylonian Empire. The reason that he did this was because for centuries before this, He was calling out to them through prophets saying, hey, (laughs) you're not being loyal to me. You're not being faithful to me. You're getting sucked into all these religious practices and all this stuff from all these other people groups around you. And this hurts me. This is not the life that I have planned for you. You're being unfaithful. You're worshiping idols. You're worshiping false gods. You're not obeying the law that I have given to you through Moses. And because you're not doing that, at some point, there's going to have to be some consequences. And so God starts describing what those consequences are going to be. There's going to be a nation that you've never even heard of that's going to come and take away your children. They're going to eat from your crops and your vineyards you've never, that they didn't have any part in growing. And you're going to be scattered throughout all the world. And the people of Israel ignored, ignored, ignored. And eventually, God brought down the hammer. And the nation of Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, about 600 miles from Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar, they brought a group of people down... And they took over. And people fled. Okay? They were exiled. People went to Egypt and, and uh, Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey. They fled all over the place. A bunch of people were captured and taken back to Babylon and made slaves, made servants. You've probably read of some of those people. Daniel, the guy in the lion's den. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the guys in the fiery furnace. Those were young men, probably preteens or teenagers, that were taken back to serve in the king's palace. And then some people were left behind. They were known as the remnant. The people left behind, the remnant, were the ones who did not have the physical ability, the means, or the intelligence to flee when it was time to flee, nor did they have any value for the Babylonians when the Babylonians were taking slaves and servants back. They were probably the elderly, the decrepit, the disabled, the diseased, the sick. Now, there was another component of the remnant that was left behind, and they were the farmers. Some farmers were left behind to continue maintaining the crops and maintaining the vineyards. Why? Because the Babylonians, just as God had promised, were going to continue to eat from those crops and drink wine from those vines. So, we fast forward about 70 years or so. We start reading this memoir of this guy named Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah has grown up in what is now Persia. After the Babylonians took over Israel, they had been a world power for a while. The Persian Empire comes in and takes over Babylon, still in Iraq. Okay? And Nehemiah has grown up there and he is a secular government worker. He is the head of the king's security detail. He's the cupbearer for the king. And he has a friend or brother. He refers to him as a brother. When we read chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah, his friend Ananiah, his brother Ananiah, returns from a visit to the city of Jerusalem. And he asks him, hey, how are things going in Jerusalem? And Ananiah says, not very good. See, what had happened in the previous 15 years or so we read this in the book of Haggai and the book of Ezra, is that the king of Persia started letting people go back to their home and native lands. In the book of Haggai, we read that a group of people were allowed to leave Babylon, Persia, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they rebuilt the temple in the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed when the Babylonians had uh, taken over. But the new temple was a pale comparison to the first temple. In fact, it says, scripture tells us that the people wept when they saw it because it was not Solomon's temple. And then about 10 or 12 years prior to our opening scene in the book of Nehemiah, a man named Ezra led a group of 15, 16, 1700 men somewhere around there back to the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the walls around the city. You see, Jerusalem was never a world class city. If you ever go on a trip to the Middle East and you visit the Holy Land and you go to the city of Jerusalem, the original city of Jerusalem was not that big. It wasn't that big of a city, but it had a world class temple built by King Solomon and it had a world class wall. Those are two things that would have said something significant about that city. They had a great God. They had a great God. They had a God worth worshiping, which is why they had that amazing temple. And they had this fortified wall which protected them. But now we fast forward hundreds of years. And the temple that's there is, eh, it's okay. And the walls are still rubble around the city. And so Ezra leads a group of men to go back to try to rebuild the walls And a dozen years later, we find out in Nehemiah chapter 1 that the walls are still a pile of rubble. The gates have been burned, and the city is literally, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to God. And when Nehemiah hears this, it completely breaks his heart. He falls to his knees, he weeps, he prays. And he doesn't do what most of us would do in the same situation, which is, God, would you please raise up a man who knows all about construction and masonry and architecture and send him to go rebuild that wall? Nehemiah says, God, if I'm the one, make it happen. I'll do it. And so he goes to the king of Persia, his boss, and asks for a leave of absence to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to oversee the construction project. And miracle of miracles, the king of Persia gives him the leave of absence, blesses him with an armed escort to make this 600-mile journey to get there safely, and arranges for other nations to actually provide all of the material resources that they're going to need to rebuild this wall. God's hand is in this. So as we continue reading into chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah rallies the troops. He gets there. He says, hey, folks, we've got a problem here. God's glory has gone from this city, and God's glory will never be restored if we don't rebuild this wall. We're never going to be able to experience life the way that God wants us to experience life and him with this city lying in ruins. And the people there say, we're with you, Nehemiah. Tell us what to do. And they began the good work. That's what the text tells us. They began the good work. Now, there's some opposition There are some folks there that don't want to see the wall rebuilt. They don't want to see the wall rebuilt because they are non-Jewish people. 
They're not Israelites. And they've set up business and are making money and are leveraging the fact that there are no walls, keeping them out for their own good. And so Nehemiah is facing some opposition. Now, we're going to read some text this morning. And again, I promise you, I do have a point. We're going to start reading at verse 15. If we read the first 14 verses of chapter 3, Nehemiah is describing the construction work and who's involved in doing the work. And he starts at the sheep gate and he's working his way counterclockwise around the city. And we're picking up about halfway through. Okay. And I promise there's a point to what we're going to read here. Okay. I promise there's a point. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning of verse 15. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Colhose, the leader of the Mizpah district. He rebuilt it, roofed it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden, and he rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descended from the city of David. Next to him was Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, the leader of half the district of Beth-zur, He rebuilt the wall from a place across from the tombs of David's family as far as the water reservoir and the house of the warriors. Next to him, repairs were made by a group of Levites working under the supervision of Rahum, son of Bani. Then came Heshabiah, the leader of the half-district of Calah, who supervised the building of the wall on behalf of his own district. Next down the line were his countrymen, led by Benui, son of Hanadad, the leader of the other half of the district of Calah. Next to them, Azar, son of Yeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section of the wall across from the ascent of the armory near the angle in the wall. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zabai, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, and the grandson of Hakaz, rebuilt another section of the wall extending from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of the house. The next repairs were made by the priests from the surrounding region. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired the section across from their house and Azariah son of Messiah the grandson of Ananiah repaired the section across from his house next to Benui son of Hanadad who rebuilt another section of the wall from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner Palal, son of Uzai, carried on the work from a point opposite the angle in the tower that projects up from the king's upper house beside the court of the guard. Next to him were Padiah, son of Perosh, with the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, who repaired the wall as far as a point across from the water gate to the east in the projecting tower. Then came the people of Tekoa, who repaired another section across from the great projecting tower and over to the wall of Ophel. Are you still with me? Everybody still awake? Okay, pinch yourself. We got a little bit more to go. Here we go. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Next, Zadok, son of Immer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And beyond him was Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. Next, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, And Hanum, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. While Meshulam, son of Barakiah, rebuilt the wall across from where he lived. Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing for the temple servants and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner, the other goldsmiths and merchants repaired the wall from that corner to the sheep gate. We've gone all the way around. Okay. Now, come on, let's confess. You've never heard a sermon preached on this text before. And when you're doing your own Bible reading, this is one of those sections that you're like, why did God preserve this? Four thousands of years for us to read? Okay. I'm not a theologian. I'm just an average everyday guy who loves Jesus and who wants to read the Bible, learn what I can from what God has preserved for us, and see how that could help me 
be a better, better reflection of Jesus in the world around me. And I was studying this out, this text out a while ago. And as I read this, and I read some commentaries that went along with it, there were some things that sort of stood out to me. Some things that I think might be helpful for you here at Norwalk Grace Brethren Church as we are working together to reclaim God's glory in this church. I asked your vision team the other day, what do people in this community think about Norwalk Grace Brethren Church? And one of the members, who I will not name, who's on your vision team said, they don't. The people in this community don't think of our church. Well, we want to change that. We want to bring God's glory back to this church to make the impact that God would desire for us to so what's the point of this text? Why did you just read this, Bart? Well, let me share a few things, a few highlights. Double-click on a couple of things that I think and I hope will be helpful for you as you think about how we as a church collectively work together to bring God's glory back to this church and make an impact in this community and how you can play a part in that. First off, this is just a side note. When we think of Nehemiah, if, I, if you've ever read the Bible, studied the Bible, if you've been a long-time follower of Jesus, and when we say, what's Nehemiah famous for? Most people will say, for rebuilding the wall. How many of you would have said that? Rebuilding the wall. He rebuilt the wall. Yes, he did. But when Nehemiah is describing the construction work, he's not talking about the wall. He's talking about the gates. He goes from gate to gate to gate to gate. The gates are important. Gates allow people to enter and to exit. A wall without gates is a prison. Religion without grace is a prison. Following God is not about following rules. It's about having that relationship, having that freedom, having that grace to enter in on our own accord. And I just think it's very interesting that Nehemiah spends so much time focused on the gates. Rules are important. The walls are important. Rules protect us. Walls protected the people of Jerusalem. But without the freedom, without the gates to enter in and to exit freely, it's like being incarcerated. And that's not what God wants for you. It's not what he wants from you. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want, he's not looking for a bunch of rule followers. He's looking for people who want to enter into relationship with him freely through grace. God's rules exist for our protection, just like that wall existed for the protection of the people of Israel, of Jerusalem. But without gates, there's no way in, there's no way out. One of the things I want to emphasize here this morning is the way that the city collective worked together. There was teamwork. It took a team of people. Everyone had a part to play. Without the cooperation of everyone in the community, the effort of rebuilding the wall and rehanging the gates would have certainly fallen short. And here's what's interesting to note. When you read the text, I read it so fast, I'm sure you didn't notice this, but not once were the people mentioned who were doing the construction work Professional wall builders or gate hangers. There were no architects, masons, construction workers mentioned. It was goldsmiths, merchants, priests. People who probably didn't have the skill set 
to rebuild walls and hang gates, but who knew so much that it's what God wanted to be done, that they were willing to roll up their sleeves and join the effort to get it done. They didn't leave the job to the professional construction workers. And we, as a church family, cannot leave the revitalization and the ministry work and the evangelism of our church up to the professional Christians. If we do, we'll never get the job done. Third thing that I want to emphasize here. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 28. If you're going to put a verse on a coffee cup or a t-shirt from this passage, which you won't, but if you were, this is the one I'd use. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Now, I said earlier, part of the reason that we don't do a very good job of practicing evangelism Sometimes it's because we don't know what to do or how to do it. But a lot of times we just don't know where to start. We're very smart human beings. In our Western culture, we've done something to a story that Jesus told that I don't think is ever what Jesus intended. Many of you are probably familiar with a parable that Jesus told called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was challenged one time when Jesus said, hey, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And some smart aleck in the room says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell this amazing parable about a man who gets beaten and robbed and he's left on the side of the street and the religious people, the God people pass him by and a Samaritan who would have been anathema for the Jewish people stops and takes care of them. And he tells this example and it's like we in the Western culture have kind of taken that and gone, well, it means everyone is my neighbor and I should just be looking out for people who I can serve. Yes. But what we've used that as an excuse for is to take away the responsibility that we have to actually love our neighbor, the one who lives next door, the one who lives across the street. As a fellowship, you realize we have 230 churches in the United States. We have 3,500 churches worldwide. Why? Because we're really good at loving our neighbors in Central Africa Republic, in Germany, France. We're not as good at loving our neighbors right here in North America. That's my interpretation of it. You need to pick your brick. If you're going to help rebuild the wall of this community, bring God's glory back to this church so that we can make the impact that God desires for you to make, transforming lives, transforming a community, you're going to have to pick your brick. God has called you each individually part of the collective, but individually to be a part of the mission of helping people find him. And your part is no different than the priests, the goldsmiths, and the merchants in Nehemiah's day. You need to start right where you live. You are the priests of Norwalk. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. It's not Oscar. It's not Roy. It's not Tim. It's not the professional Christians who get a paycheck for showing up and being at church. It's all of us. We are all the priests called to do the work right in our own neighborhood. We are the living stones that God is using to build bridges, not walls, but bridges between people who are far away from him and the people that he so desires to rescue from their sin. Here's a little side note. I think this is very interesting. I don't know if it's applicable. 
But when Nehemiah starts at the beginning of chapter 3, he, we, we started halfway through, but if you read the beginning of chapter 3, he starts the description of the construction work at the Sheep Gate. And then he works all the way around the city and finishes at the Sheep Gate. Here's what's interesting about the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was the gate where all the livestock came in and out of the city. One gate designated for that, right? Because it kept messes out of all the other gates. The fountain gate was where you brought water into the city. You didn't want the cattle coming through that same gate. So the sheep gate was designated for that. The sheep gate was the gate through which Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday. Why do you think Jesus chose the sheep gate? Because Jesus was a lamb of God who was making his entry into that city to lay down his life, to be the sacrificial lamb, to pay the penalty of our sin so that we could have this restored relationship with God. Nehemiah's story begins and ends at the sheep gate. Our story begins and ends with Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we're here not to build walls, but to build gates, doorways, bridges, whatever we can to help people who are far away from God find a restored relationship with him through their son, through his son, Jesus Christ. So where are you called to work? Where are you called to begin building a gate or building a bridge, creating a pathway? I'm going to say, why don't we start right where we live? If you look at your bulletin, your little handout stuck inside there looks like this. This is something that my wife and I have done for years. I, I borrowed this concept from a book called The Art of Neighboring, written by a pastor who pretty much says, hey, we're not very good neighbors anymore, so why don't we try being better neighbors? So here's your homework. Your homework is take this sheet and recognize your house is the one in the middle. That's why it says you are here. Maybe if you live in a house or an apartment, wherever you live. How many of your neighbors who live around you can you name by first and last name? And if you can't fill them all in, why don't you set a goal for yourself to get to know the names of your neighbors? Really hard to imagine that you're loving your neighbor as yourself if you don't know their name. Then I want you to do, after you've filled in all the names, hang it on your refrigerator. And pray for those people. Like I said, it doesn't matter whether you've been following Jesus for 40 years or following Jesus for 45 minutes. Anybody in this room can do this. Now, what's really cool or weird, depending on how you like to categorize it, hopefully some of those neighbors are going to come in your house and they're going to walk in your kitchen and they're going to see their name on your refrigerator. And they're going to say, why you got my name on your refrigerator? And here's your answer. I follow Jesus. And he says that I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And I just figured the best way for me to start loving my neighbors is to pray for my neighbors. So I pray for you. Is there anything specific that I can be praying for? How's that? Easy? Think you can do that? You don't need to invite them to church. You don't need to sit down and do the cocktail, napkin, sin, God, bridge, illustration. Like, 
there are ways that you can share your faith with someone. You can share the gospel with them. But I dare say that if you will begin praying for your neighbors intentionally, that God might use you and your church family to help them discover hope, eternal hope, through a relationship with Jesus, you'll be amazed at what God can do in and through you, the priests of Norwalk. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, even though we may not know the names that go in these squares, you know all the names. You know every one of those people. And you, Jesus, you died for every one of those people. And our hearts should break for that. Can you help us? Can you help us take these first steps? of knowing our neighbors, loving our neighbors, praying for our neighbors. Would you bless this church and the leadership team in this church for being willing to have the courage to say things in our church are not where they need to be and we want to do better. Not because we want to be a bigger church. Not because anything that the world might say is important, but because we know that these lost people in our community are important to you. And that's why you have us here. I pray for every person that's in this room, in this hearing, watching online, that we would just sense both conviction but also confidence in you, Holy Spirit. You lead us where we need to go to do the things that we need to do to to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our amazing Savior. Amen.